Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Church on the Trail. We're so happy y'all are here with us. Whether you're here in person or watching uh, online, we're so glad you're here to join us. This is your first time here. We're so glad you've chosen to worship with us. Our mission here is to help people find their way back to God and grow. It's why we exist as a church, and we're just so happy y'all have chosen to come and worship with us. We're going to jump right into worship real quick, so we hope that you'll sing along with us.
There's nothing worth more that could ever come close. No thing can compare. You're our living hope. Your presence, Lord. I'll taste it and see. Comes free, my shame is undone. It's in your presence, Lord. Holy Spirit, you are welcome. Come flood this place, fill the Come close, no 
out, let us become. Let us become more aware of your presence. Let us experience the glory of your goodness. out one more time. Holy Spirit. Oh 
once again, we just pray that our hearts and minds would be focused completely on you as we hear a word from Ed this morning that we would learn from it, that you would speak to us through it, and that we would chase after what you have called us to, knowing that that's far beyond anything we could ask or imagine. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you all again for joining us this morning for worship. Um, we have some exciting things coming up this next week uh, in our church, so we want to let you know about it. So check out the screen real quick. Good morning. We're really glad that you're worshiping with us today, whether you're here in person or watching online. Thank you for being with us. Easter is one week away, and we've got a really packed week of some really cool stuff going on here at Church on the Trail, so I want to tell you all about it. It starts on Tuesday night. Our foundation's young adults ministry is having a movie night. They're going to watch the amazing film, The Passion of the Christ. That's this Tuesday at 6.30. Now, if you're like me, you're going, wow, I wish I was a young adult, because I'm not. Uh, but you know what? The Foundation's Young Adults Ministry, they're so awesome, they are extending the invitation to all of us. Yeah, that's right. Everybody in the church family, if you would like to share in watching The Passion of the Christ this Tuesday, then come and join us at 6.30. We hope to see you there. Next is Thursday. Now, this week is the first Thursday of the month, and so it's time for Trailblazers and the Grove. That is our men's ministry and our ladies' ministry. So, guys, gals, let's join here at the church. The ladies will be gathering right here in the auditorium. The gentlemen will gather on the kids' side, and then, actually, we're going to head down to the land, weather permitting. But Thursday night, 6.30, Trailblazers and the Grove. Child care is provided so everybody can come. We hope to see you there. And of course, Friday is Good Friday. So we're going to be having a special worship gathering right here in our worship center at 6 p.m. on this Friday, April the 2nd. Join us for worship. We're going to have a powerful message about the cross. We're going to share communion together. And it's all designed for us to remember the sacrifice of Jesus on that very first Good Friday. So we hope you'll come. We invite everyone to come. There will not be child care, so families will just participate and experience the worship gathering together. We hope that you can remember the Lord's death with us this Friday at our Good Friday service. And, of course, we hope that you will be with us for our Easter Sunday celebration one week from today, April 4th, at 1030 one Easter worship service, not two, one. And we're going to be meeting on the land. So we're going to celebrate an open air, outdoor Easter. So be with us, 1030. Come on out, bring the family. We're going to have a, a, a great time celebrating our risen Lord. We'll see you there. Hey, one more thing to tell you about. Our next Life Track classes are coming on three Sundays in a row in April. April 11th, 18th. And 25th Life Track is how you become a member here at Church on the Trail. This series of three classes is available by registration only. So you need to go to the website, churchonthetrail.org/events, and let us know you want to be a part of Life Track. Well, that's it. Like I said, we've got a lot of great stuff happening this week and in the month ahead. We hope you're going to be involved. If you have any questions, three ways you can get more information. 
here at the Welcome Center Connections Desk in the hallway, our church website, churchonthetrail.org, or on Faith Life. Enjoy the rest of the service. Hey, good morning, y'all. Good morning, good morning. That was weak. Come on now. All right. That was a little better. Wasn't as good as the, the early service. Y'all usually clip them. But anyway, I want to give you one more quick announcement about Sunday, about next Sunday, Easter. We're having also a 7 o'clock sunrise prayer time. It is not a worship service, so don't be coming at 7 o'clock in lieu of 1030 because there's not a message. It's not, it's not a worship service. We're just going to gather uh, on, the, on the church property, which, by the way, if you're kind of new to our church family and we talk about the land and the property all the time, it's about 1,000 yards down Flat Rock Road on the left, right on the other side of the, when you cross the trail on the left, and we will be building a church there, a church building there. So if, if you hear us talking about it all the time and you're like, what are they talking about? That's what we're talking about. So we're going to have that 7 a.m. We invite you to come. We're just going to pray. We're going to pray about what is God going to do on Easter Sunday with lives? What hearts are going to change? You know, who's going to show up on that property every year? People show up lost and they leave found. They show up blind and they leave with 20-20 vision. So uh, that's what we're going to pray through and pray about. We're going to pray over the, the chairs that are there. We're going to pray... We're going to pray where the message is going to be preached. We're going to pray where the worship team is going to be leading us into worship. So it'll be a really, really good time at 7 o'clock Sunday morning. So we invite you uh, to come out to that. Now, uh, before we get started, we, we had, we're at a time in, today in this worship service where we worship the Lord through the receiving uh, of an offering, the receiving of tithes and offerings. And, and we say this, Richard says this all the time, that, and by the way, this is a perfect example of, uh, of your generosity and the generosity of the folks in this church. Richard is away on a men's conference, uh, men's weekend conference thingy for Route 1520, which is what thingy. Did I just say thingy? I didn't mean to say that. Um, uh, it's it's a, a men's recovery ministry that we, that we have at Church on the Trail that was born in our church in Columbus that we now have planted three other Route 1520s around Columbus, one in Fort Benning and two at other churches. And so that's the kind of stuff that we do. That's the, that's the, those are the types of things that the, the, the giving, the generosity in our, in our church family, it fuels that stuff. It fuels, you know, today as we're sitting here going to talk about Jesus today, you know, we've got the kids next door talking about Jesus, the tots in the back talking about Jesus. It fuels those things. The generosity does the root, uh, excuse me, the, the homeless ministry, M2540, you know, everything's got a number. M2540, the homeless ministry, it fuels that. It fuels, fuels generations, the foster care prevention family preservation ministry. We're going to be launching a ministry over the next 30 days in partnership with Love Life, which is a choose life ministry. Y'all, abortion in this country is sick. It's sick. And we are called as a church to do something about that, to do, to play a role, whatever kind of role that may be. And we're going to be partnering with, uh, with Love Life, launching that ministry um, in the next 30 days. My point is the generosity in the church fuels all that. And we want to be good stewards and wise stewards of the resources. So let me pray over that. Mechanically up on the screen is how you can give um, to, to Church on the Trail, whether it be 
in the kiosk out there, or you can Venmo, or you can go to the church website, churchonthetrail.org slash give. There's some black boxes, one here, one over there, and then a couple out there. You know, multiple, that's all the mechanics of it. So let me pray over that, and then we'll jump into our message today. Lord, we love you today. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you, Lord, for the salvation that you offer us. Lord, we thank you for the privilege to give, the privilege to be generous, the privilege to act as your hands and your feet in a lost and dying world that desperately is in need of you. Lord, it's a privilege to be able to do that. It's a privilege that you allow your church to play a role in what you've got going on out in the world. And so, Lord, we're honored to, to do that. Lord, we trust and we have faith and we believe that you'll take these, uh, these offerings, that you'll take the resources uh, in our church family and you will, uh, you will lead us to be wise, you'll lead us to be good stewards, and you'll multiply that to bring you glory. And so again, we love you, we thank you in Jesus' name. Hey, y'all, so we are, we're at the, we ended last week, we ended a walkthrough that was about a 10 or 11 month walkthrough. Paul's letter to the church in Rome verse by verse, which was super cool. At least I thought it was super cool, but I was preaching it. But, but it was a cool thing to do to walk through that verse by verse, and my timing was a week off because last April when I planned that, uh, when I planned the schedule, I wanted to, to end the week before Easter, so I was a week off. So today we've got kind of a, a standalone sort of message that we're going to walk through a passage in the Old Testament um, in 2 Samuel chapter 23, and I want to make this statement as a little bit of a preface probably, and that would be this, and, I, and the Lord sort of impressed this on me, I don't know, 18 years ago uh, probably, and it was this idea that me and you need to quit living like the purpose of life is to slide in safely at death. We need to quit living like the whole purpose of life is to just arrive safely at death. And so I want to have a conversation this morning about a guy that I don't imagine you've probably ever heard the name when I say the name. But he's a, he's a guy, and I'm going to say outside of Jesus Christ, this guy is my, my greatest hero in Scripture. And his name is Benaiah. And he's in one of the history books in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel. You know, you got Judges and Joshua and 1 and 2 Chronicles and 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Samuel. These are history books in Scripture. Every book's not history. The, the Bible's not an exhaustive history of every event that happened on the planet because there's poetry and prophecy and yada, yada. But, but these books are history books. And so we're going to be in 2 Samuel. And this chapter, uh, chapter 23, is King David's, and we're not positive who wrote First and Second Samuel, but but uh, in in chapter twenty three, it is like King David's gallery of heroes. It's like King David's band of brothers, the the might, David's mighty warriors, and there's a bunch of them, over thirty listed in there. These are men who distinguish themselves uh, as big time adventurers uh, with with huge deeds of service to to God and country, to God and Israel, and to King David. These guys that are listed in chapter 23, they make up David's elite troops, right? So we're going to read a couple of verses, starting in verse 20 of, of 2 Samuel 23. And so the Bible says, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, a valiant fighter. 
not just a fighter, a valiant fighter. Y'all, there's a lot of adjectives in these, in these few verses. And that word, uh, he calls him a man of valor. He's a valiant fighter. And that word, that Hebrew word that is used there to describe Benaiah is the same word in the book of Ruth that describes Boaz. And Boaz, it says that in, in Ruth, it says that Boaz was a man of valor. He was a man of standing. He was a man of honor and of integrity. And he was a mighty man. And Boaz was Jesus' great, 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 some number of greats, grandpappy. And so that's the same word that is used here of Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada. And it says he was a fighter, a valiant fighter from Kabzeel. It says he performed great exploits. Just exploits? No, he performed great exploits. It says he struck down Moab's two mightiest warriors. It doesn't say he struck down two Moabite warriors. It says that he struck down Moab's mightiest warriors. He also went down, this is where we're going to kind of land um, talking about this next sentence, which, is, which says, talking about Benaiah, that he also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion, which is crazy. Verse 21 says he struck down a huge Egyptian, not just an Egyptian, but a huge Egyptian. Although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Benaiah went against him with a club. And I cracked up, I crack up at this next sentence. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Now, can you imagine, you know, this guy, a huge Egyptian, not just an Egyptian, a, a, a huge Egyptian. Benaiah doesn't have a spear. Benaiah's got a club. The huge Egyptian has a spear, and Benaiah's like, give me that. You don't even know what you're doing with it. And then he kills him with it. So this is a rough, tough guy, Benaiah. I want to think about him. Think about that guy. The Bible doesn't tell me and you what he was doing or where he was going when he runs into this lion in verse 20. It doesn't tell us his mindset. It doesn't tell us his emotional state. It doesn't tell us does he have anxiety. It doesn't tell us any, any of that stuff. It just tells us that he jumped into a pit with a lion on a snowy day and he's the one that came out and the lion didn't. Now, the reality is normal people, normal folks run away from lions, but not lion chasers, not Benaiah. Those folks are wired up a little differently. If you imagine this scene, Benet is probably tracking, at some point he's probably tracking this beast. The Bible doesn't tell us how far they are apart, but you would imagine at some point they lock eyes. And most encounters like that, man versus lion in the same way. You know, they lock eyes, man runs, lion chases, lion catches, lion eats man. That's just usually what happens. But not this time. Not, not this time. Crazy enough, the lion slips into a pit, and the Bible says it on a snowy day. I don't know why. I, I wish I could tell you there's, give you some deep theological meaning behind the snow. Like, I don't have the vaguest idea, and I don't know how often it snows in Israel. I don't, I don't, in the Middle East, I don't know. I'm assuming they were up on a mountain somewhere where there's snow. The lion slips into this pit, and when the lion slips into the pit, I'm sure that the lion lands on its feet because cats always land on their feet. It's creepy. Like it creeps me out. You can throw a cat up 30 feet. It's going to land on its feet. I don't throw cats up, so don't. I shouldn't have said that. You cat lovers, I'm not walking around the parking lot throwing cats up in the air. They just kind of creep me out. And so this lion lands on his feet, I promise you, in this pit. Well, what does Benaiah do? I thought, when I read this, I thought, what would I do? Well, I'd thank the Lord, that Scar didn't catch me, that Scar fell in a pit. And I'd go head back to the, to the cabin. Y'all do know who Scar is, don't you? Okay, thank you. I'd head back to the cabin, get around the fire, read a book, 
and just be thankful that I didn't have to, to deal with that, but not Benaiah, not line chasers. He gets a running start, and he takes this big leap of faith. And so you got two sets of prints leading up to that pit, a set of paw prints and a set of footprints. But at the end of the day, there's only one set leading away, and that set that's leading away, y'all, are our footprints. This has got to be one of the wildest, craziest victories in all of Scripture. And so I want to give you a couple of, of things that I believe right down uh, into my very core. A few. God, y'all, God is in the business, and he's always been in the business, of strategically positioning us in the right place at the right time. He is really, really good at getting us where he wants us to be. We think that we're good at getting us where we want to be, but it's not about where we want to be. It's about where he wants us to be, and he's super good at doing that. And as Christ followers, as Christ followers, I think destiny is a birthright that we have when we're born again, when, we're, when we become a new creation, when we get saved. We have this destiny. But now sometimes the, the right place feels like the wrong place and the right time feels like the wrong time. Have you ever felt that way? Tell the truth. I mean, I have. And I would say typically running into a lion would signify the wrong place at the wrong time. A re really, really bad, quote, luck. Y'all know I don't believe in luck. But it would signify a bad break. It would signify probably, if I find myself face-to-face -face with a lion, it's probably marking the day of my demise. But not for lion chasers, not for Benaiah. How many sets of prints were leading away from the pit? Right? And it doesn't even tell us that he had a weapon down there. I'm rolling down the road with he killed the lion with his bare hands. Right? Look a couple of verses later. Verse 23. See what happens to Benaiah. Verse 23 says, And David set him over his bodyguard. So he becomes the head of the secret service detail for King David. That's what happened. That's how, that, that's how history rolled out. It doesn't tell us how long that took, but that's what happened. So you picture at some point a few weeks before that, King David, greatest king of Israel, King David's in his office and he's thumbing through resumes for who needs to be, who he's going to hire to be the head of his secret service detail. And he's got this one first guy and he goes to, he graduated from the Jewish Military Academy. I don't know. With a, with a 4.0 GPA, and he did it in three years. And he goes to the next uh, resume, and this guy went to Tel Aviv Tech or something, and he's got a doctorate, two doctorates from there. These are, these are valid applicants. And then he opens up Benaiah's resume, and he flips it over, and it says, I killed a lion with my hands on a snowy day in a pit. That dude is hired, y'all. He is hired. Those other people don't bring to the table this lion-chasing, big-faith, risk-taking mentality that, that Benaiah does. Now, if you back up, zoom out or whatever a little bit, and you look at this big picture, again, for most of us, if we find ourselves nose-to-nose -nose with a lion, it, it would just signify a bad thing. But can you see how God turns what could have been a really bad break into a really good break, into a really big break. Benaiah gets this job interview with the king of Israel. 
And so principle number one, and I think it's the main principle that we extract out of this text in 2 Samuel, is that God always uses past experiences to prepare us for future opportunities. Always. I don't care what the experiences are. It could be the worst experience of your life. It could be the best experience of your life. But God is going to use those things to prepare us for something down here. Now, the, the, the delta between that and that, it may be 10 minutes, it may be 15 years, like I don't know. But I know he's not going to waste. God's a wise resource user. He's not going to waste. The, he's weaving a tapestry, y'all, in our lives. Often we don't even know it. Like we don't even recognize it. Now, when you get down here sometimes and you look back in hindsight, you can see, oh, wow, that's what God was doing. I didn't realize it in the moment. That happens to all of us all the time. Look back on your lives and you can see that often the greatest opportunities were totally the scariest moments of our lives. The biggest risks ultimately become the most awesomest opportunities. And, y'all, you can't talk about this without talking about regrets a little bit. I think there's two kinds of regrets. There are regrets of inaction and their regrets of action. Wishing that you hadn't done something versus wishing that you had done something. Theologically, maybe if we tie sin to this, these would be um, sins of commission versus sins of, of omission. And the churches forever, forever have focused way, way too much on sins of commission. I want to give you this laundry list of don't do this and don't do that and don't this and don't that. There's this long, long list. Somehow we think or we're, we're maybe taught, maybe we're taught by the church, maybe we're taught by mom and daddy, that holiness, y'all, holiness is not spoken about enough. Somehow we're taught that, that holiness is the result only of removing something from our lives that shouldn't be there. Now, clearly, there are things in our lives that shouldn't be there and need to be removed. Clearly, clearly. I remember the day I got saved. I had a bunch of junk in my life. He immediately, the Lord, immediately removed two things kind of from my life. One was I spoke like a drunken sailor, and number two, um, my view on abortion changed the second I got saved. I'm not ashamed to stand up here and tell you before I got saved that whatever pro-choice means, that, that was what I was. I never thought about it enough. But the second I got saved, it was like, oh my gosh, that's murder. The second. So, so yes, there is a component of removing things from our lives that shouldn't be there. Uh, absolutely there is. But it's not just that. I think sometimes God may be more concerned about the sins of, of, of omission, the things that we should have done. Principle number two is this, that goodness is not just the absence of badness. In other words, goodness is not just the removal of something that's jacked up. Because you can do nothing wrong and still do nothing right. Me and you can do nothing wrong, but we can still do nothing right. Sometimes me and you just run away from sin. Now, don't walk out of here and say, well, Ed said we're not supposed to run away from sin. No, you are supposed to run away from sin. But if that's all you do, then you're kind of half Christian, and you can't. there's no such thing as being half Christian because you half repented. 
Repentance is not a 90-degree turn. Yes, I run away from sin. Yes, I turn away from sin, but repentance is 180 degree. I got to turn away from the sin and turn towards God. It's a 180 degree turn. And when I, when I turn away from the sin and I turn towards God, me and him fixing to go chase some lions. Right? If I turn towards him, we're going to go chase lions together. And he's going to be in front of me. I'm not ever going to get in front of him. Or I'm going to do my very best to never try to get in front of him. I'm going to let him lead me on the hunt. This is a mindset change, y'all. It's a, it's a worldview kind of change. And so I think the result of that change of, of mindset is that when we don't have the guts to step out in faith and, and attack the issues in our lives and chase the lions that are, that are in our world, in our life, then we're robbing God of the glory that's his. It rightfully belongs to him. He deserves it. It's all his. And when we step out and we believe and we act based on that belief and that trust, it just brings him praise and honor and glory. It does. And I think it makes him smile. I really do think it makes him smile. It's like when one of your kids believes you, I know that doesn't happen much between about age 12 and 20. It happens up to maybe age 11 or 12 and after 20. But when they do believe you and they act on their belief in what you said and you see that work out for them as a dad, like that's a joyful kind of thing. And I think our Heavenly Father is the same way. When he sees our trust and faith that we place in him, even when it's scary, when it's a scary thing, and we have a little bit of fear, but then it works out. I think it makes him smile. I remember my oldest son was nine years old. He was going from eight-year-old, this is Little League, he's going from coach pitch, and when he was nine, he got drafted into A-ball. Well, A-ball is nine, 10, 11, and 12-year-olds. Coach pitch is coach pitch. You know, the difference, how many of y'all have any Little League in your, in your life experience? Okay, well, coach pitch, the coach is trying to hit the bat with the ball rather than the bat hitting the ball. Does that make sense? The, the toughest place on a field in coach pitch little league game is the, the adult that's pitching. Because if a kid strikes out, it ain't the kid's fault. It's your fault as a coach. You're shaking your head because you know exactly what I'm talking about. So Zach, and you go, typically you go to B ball. He ended up getting drafted into A ball. And so in A ball, you got, and he went from coach pitch to kid pitch. And not just kid pitch, but it's 9, 10, 11, and 12-year-olds. Well, there can be a pretty big delta between a 9-year-old and a 12-year-old, and that delta is puberty. And it, it can be different. You know, you got kids. My son was about 37 pounds soaking wet. He turned sideways and disappeared when he was 9 years old. I mean, little. He was a little kid. Lean and mean, but he was a little, he was a little guy. Well, the, the first game, and he was a little freaked out about kids throwing at him from 60 feet, especially 12-year-olds. kid's name was Cody Milner. The first game of the, that fall, it was fall ball, the first game of that first season in the first inning, Zach goes up to the plate, and Cody Milner's pitching. Now, Cody Milner's 12 years old. He's got a full beard, look like ZZ Top. He's probably like 180 pounds. I mean, he's a big, he's way bigger than me, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. 
you know, and Zach goes up to the plate. I'm lying to you if I'm telling you that he wasn't a little scared. He was. But before he went up there, I said, courage is not the absence of fear, son. Courage is when you're kind of scared, but you do it anyway. And so he got, and he was like, what? But he, he went on up there. And the first pitch, and Cody threw probably 70 miles an hour when he was 12 from 60 feet away. The first pitch hit Zach dead middle of the back. And it didn't glance off. It hit him and dropped. And it, it was like Zach's little body wrapped around the ball, right? And I thought, well, here we go. He's either going to start crying, run to the dugout, and that's going to be the end of baseball, or he's going to drop the bat and run to first base. Well, he dropped the bat and ran to first base. And when he came around and scored, he came in, he said, Daddy, you were right. It hurt a little bit. It actually hurt kind of bad. But it's not the end of the world, right? Because he trusted what I said, and it really did make me smile. I think that God does that to us when we listen to him and we're obedient and we trust and we act based on that. So I think we got to consider today that maybe, just maybe, life ain't supposed to be as safe or as civilized as we're all raised and led to believe. Maybe Jesus Christ was more dangerous and more uncivilized than the image that's been passed down through centuries. I'm telling you, the way history has portrayed Jesus in art and literature is just probably not accurate, right? Read the Bible. He was a man. He was a manly man. He was not some mealy-mouthed, little skinny, blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy that in the crucifixion that he had one little drop of blood on his face and the crown was sitting gently on his head. No. The thorns pierced his skull. It was hammered in his head. This was a man. And so maybe we're not supposed to be all civilized. Now, I'm not trying to tell you to go out and act like a fool. I'm not saying that. But maybe God is raising up. I'm praying, y'all, that God is raising up a generation of line-chasing folks. Maybe God wants you to trust him and jump in a pit. It's a maturity thing. It's like a spiritual maturity thing. And spiritual maturity in this sense is seeing and seizing the opportunities, the God-ordained opportunities that come across your path. Because when, when somebody's life crosses your life, that's a providential relationship. God has ordained that. We got to recognize that. And we got to seize, we got to seize that. And it's flipping your brain around into a way that when you think of, of every opportunity as God's gift to you, and you're, the way you respond to that is your gift back to him. Because he has, he has, he has measured and he has, he has nudged those, those footsteps, and he's ordained all of those relationships. That's number two. Number three is this. And it's something that I've been very convinced of in about the last 10 or 15 years of my life, and that is that our greatest regrets in life are going to be missed opportunities because it's like a stewardship issue. And we, yes, we need to be stewards, good stewards of all of our resources, of our money, for sure, of our time, for sure. But we need to be good, good stewards of, of our opportunities. When you come face to face with this lion, are you going to run away like a scaredy cat or are you going to grab it by the mane? Benaiah grabbed opportunity by the mane and he ended up not just being King David's chief bodyguard, he ended up being the commander of all of the Israeli army. God was working in all of that. 
And there's skills that I want us to recognize this morning and develop this morning. And those skills are going to help us to, to chase the biggest, scariest junk in your life. The biggest, scariest lines in your life. The biggest, scariest issues. The things that, that you lay at, at, in the bed at night staring at the ceiling and maybe you worry about. I hope that you come away today not wanting to worry about those things anymore. Like, I don't know what the, what the Vegas odds would be on these three events that are in verses 20 and 21 of 2 Samuel 23 because there's kind of three things that happened in there. But I bet you the odds Benaiah wasn't favored in any of them. I'm thinking with the two mighty warrior Moabite warriors, it, you got a two-to-one odds beyond a shadow of a doubt. I would imagine that the Egyptian, the, the little Egyptian, what's the Bible say? No, the huge Egyptian. You got 10 or 12 to 1 odds. And then you got man versus a five or 600 pound lion. Who knows what, what those odds were? But Benaiah did what, what big faith risk taking, lion chasing folks do. And it's like he locked arms with the Lord and the odds got defied. And he didn't focus and whine. He didn't focus on his disadvantages. He didn't make a bunch of excuses. He didn't try to avoid situations where the odds were stacked against him. Y'all lion chasing men and women know that God is bigger and more powerfuler and more awesomer. And don't tell me about my grammar. They know that God is more all of that than any problem that we could ever face ever in our life, ever. Y'all, I hear people say, and it makes me nuts. Doesn't it say somewhere in the Bible that God's not going to give you more than you can handle? No, the Bible doesn't say that. That is folk theology. Y'all ever heard that term? F-O-L-K, folk theology. The Bible doesn't say that. I believe that God specifically, intentionally allows things to come in our life that we absolutely can't handle. Because if I can handle it myself, who gets the praise? I'm prideful, y'all. If I handle it myself, I'm getting the praise. Look, Susan, what I did. So I, I, don't, I think he specifically, intentionally allowed, first of all, every event on the planet is allowed by a sovereign God. So everything is allowed, and he uses those things, those past experiences to leverage a, a future. And I believe that sometimes God doesn't show up until something is humanly impossible. I think he loves impossible odds. I think he loves it. I think he loves to slide in right at the nick of time. But we got to recognize and trust that God is an odds defier. We got to recognize that. And we got to trust it and we got to believe it. And we got to know that that's the way he is. That's, that's his, his, uh, it's his very nature. Maybe it's that he gets to show us his power when he defies the odds. Maybe it's because there's no way when he does that, there's no way that, that Ed can possibly take the credit, that he gets all the praise and all the glory. I, I don't know. But there's example after example after example in the Bible. There's example after example in secular history. Y'all, go study the Six-Day War in Israel. If you want to see God show up on the battlefield that's not in the Scripture, Go read about the Six-Day War. You had Israel that's about this big and all the rest of the Middle East is attacking them. Six days they whooped them folks. Go read about it. Crazy God stuff in that. Read Judges chapter 7. 
Because this is recorded in Scripture. Judges chapter 7. It's the account of Gideon's army. Gideon started with 32,000 men. And with 32,000 men, Gideon was outnumbered against the Midianites. He had 32,000. He's outnumbered. God tells him, you got too many. And he's like, what are you talking about? I got too many. I'm outnumbered. I got 32,000. I'm outnumbered. How do I have too many? God, you, 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 you failed algebra or something. So how could I have too many? Well, what does God do? God tells him, get rid of the scaredy cats. Get rid of the scaredy cats. And how many guys you got left? Two-thirds of them were scaredy cats. They're gone. He's down to about 10,000. God said the odds makers changed the spread on that. And so he's down to 10,000 men. And the Lord says, you still got too many. And I know Gideon is like, what are you talking about? I was outnumbered with 32,000. Now I got 10,000, and you're telling me I still got too many. It gets whittled down. Do anybody know how many? 300. 300 men. You got 300 men now versus 35 or 40,000 men. What do you think the odds are? Crazy, ridiculous odds. And then to top it off, God tells them to attack with what? Trumpets and mason jars. Gideon is probably losing his mind. He's like, what are you telling me to do? I got to lay down the carbine. I got to lay down the AR. I got to lay down my tank. I got to lay down the Bradley. And you want me to attack with a mason jar of jelly beans? Like, what are you talking about? But that's what he, I added the jelly beans. Like, what are you talking about? But what does he do? He's obedient, and he does it. And what happens? Israel wins. They win. 300 verses 35, 40,000 men. Verse 2 of chapter 7 says, The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. In other words, you got too many people for me to, get, for me to let you whoop the Midianites with, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. So you got to think that if Israel had had whooped them with 32,000, they probably would have thanked God for lending them a hand. I, I don't want to be dumb. They just probably would have. They probably would have been praying, thank you, Lord, for helping us out. We could have probably done it by ourselves, but thank you for being there and helping us out. But with 300 men and they whooped 35, 40,000, God gets every bit of the credit. Y'all, we don't serve a God who gets partial credit. He gets full credit. He gets all the credit. He wants, he deserves, and he gets all the credit. And it happens so much in our lives. This was me. Like this was so me that I wanted God to make my odds better. Whatever the issue was, Lord, stack the odds in my favor. Like this genie in a bottle, God, that when I, something's going sideways, Lord, I'm going to need you to come out here and make the odds better. Maybe God wants to do the opposite. Maybe he wants to stack the odds the other way so we get to experience a miracle. Maybe a major component of faith and trust and belief is trust in him no matter how, no matter how the odds look. A.W. Tozer. Any of y'all ever heard of A.W. Tozer? Great writer. Wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy 67 years ago. And he said... It's so wise. He said that the most important um, thing about you is what comes to mind when you think about God. Those are, that's my interpretation of what he said. Here's literally what he said. He said the most crucial fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, 
but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. In our mind, how do we perceive God? All of us probably went to school as kids and we learned that you're a byproduct of either nature or nurture or some combination of that. I don't believe that's true. I believe that we're a byproduct of Godture, G-O-D-T-U-R-E. That's our God picture. We're a byproduct of, of our God picture. I'm saying that you and me, we're, we're, we're products of, of the way internally, how do we view God? And our internal view, mentally, emotionally, in our heart, how we, de- how we view him determines really how we see everything. Our biggest problems that we have in life, you can almost always track them back to a jacked up view of who God is. Almost always. Almost always. In other words, our problems individually seem really, really big because our God is really, really small. Our problems seem huge because we perceive of God to be small. In fact, I think that often we will reduce God down, track this with me, we will reduce God down to the size of our biggest problem in the moment. And if, and if the, the next problem is a little not as big of a problem, we'll reduce God's size down to that because that's the biggest problem we have in that moment. A low view of God and a high view of God is the difference between a scaredy cat and a lion chaser. Scaredy cats just get filled up with fear because their God is so small. And listen to what a big faith, risk-taking, lion-chasing dude. These people know that, that their best thought, their best thought about God on the best day falls infinitely short of how big and awesome he really is. So my, and I have a huge view of God just because of what he's done in my life. But my, my own personal best thought of how big he is and how awesome he is falls so short of the reality of who he is. Isaiah chapter 55 verse 8 says it so well. It says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens, think about this, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And you know what his thoughts for us are? His thoughts for us are for peace and not evil. Jeremiah 29, 11, the most misinterpreted passage in Scripture, says, for I know it's such a beautiful, beautiful words. Jeremiah writes for the Lord and he says, for I know the thoughts that I'm thinking towards you. That means, guys, a friend of mine last night on Facebook was talking about this passage. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, and they're thoughts of what? Of peace and not evil. They're thoughts of peace. Why thoughts of peace and not evil to give us a future, to give us hope and a future? You think about that for a second, God's thoughts. As of today, the biggest, the furthest away galaxy from us is 12 and a half billion light years away. I can't even imagine, can't even comprehend that. And God says, our thought, my thoughts and your thoughts are further than that apart. So his ginormousness and me are more than 12 and a half billion light years apart. So you may have 
get God out of that little box that he's, you've had him in, in your night table, and get him right-sized. That's what I want more than anything today, is for us to let him out of the box that we have, that we have put him in. And when you try to do that, when you, when you at least begin to comprehend who he is, you'll grow. And you're going to grow because he is going to grow. He is immutable, unchangeable. He doesn't literally grow. Your conception, your perception, the way you perceive of him is going to grow. And when that happens, you are going to grow. You're going to grow. So there's another principle is this. The bigger God gets, the smaller the lines become. The bigger God gets in our mind and in our heart and in our, in our, in our inner being, the smaller the issues become. And when you're indwelled with the Holy Spirit, you will become, and you've got to be saved to be indwelled with the Holy Spirit. But when that happens, you will begin to get God right-sized. This book, the Bible, it says that God had you in mind before the foundations of the world. Think about what that means. God created time, matter, and space. He's beyond those. He created time. There was no time. He snapped his fingers and he created time. And so before time even existed, he knew you. He had you in mind. He planned for every contingency that you may ever encounter before time even began. That again is like virtually, at least for my little brain, is impossible to comprehend. Think about it, 1997, however many years ago. How many years ago is that? 20-something. A team of IBM engineers come up with a computer. It, this computer outmaneuvered a, the, the chess, the grand chess master at the time was a guy named Gary Kasparov, and this computer outmaneuvered him because this computer 20-something years ago could calculate 200 million chess moves per second. Like I struggled deciding where to go to lunch. And this, this thing is 200 million chess moves per second. I can't imagine processing that. But here's what I know. 200 million contingencies per second is laughable when you compare that to the creator of the universe who took into consideration every contingency for every human that would ever live before a nanosecond ticked off the clock. Let him out of that little box you've had him in for years. That's mind-blowing. Think of your life as this game of chess, and you have no idea what your next move is, but God's already calculated the next 900 million moves, and some of them may not make sense to you. Some of them may seem illogical. Some of them may seem unreasonable. But that's to us because we can't see it all at the same time. We don't see all of that. We don't see the future and the past and the present all kind of at the same time. But I know this, uh, guys. God wants to get you where God wants to get you more than you want to get where God wants to get you. That's a tongue twister. But I made it real easy. Wherever there's a blank, just say God. Because he wants to get you where he wants to get you more than you want to get there. Paul wrote, Ephesians chapter 2. Paul wrote in verse 10, he says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared when? Beforehand that we should walk in them. Two verses before that. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. If it was of Ed's own doing, then who gets credit? Ed gets credit. 
right? If it's of David's own doing, David gets credit. If it's of Kyle's own doing, Kyle gets credit. It's not of our doing. We ain't got nothing to do with it. The only thing we have to, the only thing we bring to the table is the sin that made it necessary. It's not by works. It's a gift of God, the Bible says, so that no one may boast. And it's, so it's his grace that saves us. And it's his grace that saves seemingly very unsavable people, very unlovable people. That word in verse 10 that is prepared, it's a cool word. And that word in verse 10 that is used that says prepared, that God prepared beforehand, it's this word that comes from an ancient custom of sending out servants ahead of the king to secure safe passage for the king, to make the way safe for the king. And so the, in, in verse 10, God, God goes ahead of us to secure safe passage for us. God goes ahead of us to secure a future for us. God goes ahead of us to secure hope for us. And so when I said a minute ago, like I want to lock arms with the Lord and I want to go chase lions, but I want him to be a little bit in front of me. I don't ever want to try to get in front of him because he will always secure safe passage for me. Why? Because he loves me. Because he has grace on me. Because he shows me mercy. And because he only wants peace for us. He only wants good things for you. He does not want evil for you. He wants you to get your arms around who he is and understand that he wants to secure hope and a future. That's what he wants for us. But there is a but. Sometimes his plans involve coming face to face with a lion in a pit on a snowy day. Like, I don't know. But there's also another but. You've got to trust and know that he has ordered your footsteps. It didn't... Benaiah didn't find himself, that didn't shock God. God didn't wake up that day and say, oh my gosh, look what Benaiah did. No, God is ordering those footsteps. And you can know and you can feel this sense of destiny because, because God has taken every single contingency that will ever happen in your life and he only has your best interest at heart. So I'm telling y'all, man, pray the unthinkable. Pray the unthinkable and attempt what would be impossible to you. You've probably heard of the butterfly effect. Y'all ever heard of the butterfly effect? Let me give you the scientific definition, and I'm probably going to mess some of the words up because they're big words. The scientific definition of the butterfly effect is this. The sensitive dependence on initial conditions in which a small change in one state of a deterministic nonlinear system can result in large differences in a later state. In Ed speak, it means when you change something, everything changes. Right? That's what it means. A nothing event like the flapping of a butterfly's wing can conceivably alter wind currents a thousand miles away and change the weather. I want you to hold on to that thought, that butterfly effect thought. Because I know that most God-ordained dreams die because me and you aren't willing to do something that may seem illogical, that may seem maybe even crazy. And sometimes that's a calculated risk that has us giving up something good that turns out to result in something great. Sometimes it's a small act of courage. It changes the course of history. Somebody takes a risk. Somebody takes a stand. Somebody makes a courageous decision, a courageous sacrifice, and that has a domino effect. It has a butterfly effect on, on and not just their life, but all of history. Queen Esther, 
Queen Esther in Esther chapter 4 said, though it's against the law, she said, I'll go in and see the king. If I must die, I must die. Nehemiah, a Jewish cupbearer, he said, if it please the king and, if it, and you are pleased with me, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. That's in Nehemiah chapter 2. Daniel chapter 3, three Jewish friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they said to the king, we don't need to defend ourselves before you. He wanted to bow down. They said, we ain't bowing down before you. If we're thrown into a blazing furnace, then so be it. Because we serve a God who is able to save us. Acts, fast forward eight, nine hundred years. Two disciples, Peter and John, what do they say? They say, dude, all we can tell you before King Agrippa, all we can do is all we can tell you is what happened. The the grave, the dead guy's in the grave and he was not dead anymore, he was alive. That's all we can tell you. We can just tell you what we saw and what we heard. And then, y'all, what does God do with that? The Jewish nation is saved through Queen Esther's courage. Nehemiah builds a wall in Jerusalem. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get promoted to huge positions. And the whole ancient world heard the gospel because Peter and John couldn't and wouldn't be silenced. Y'all, for Benea, this one step in, in the direction of this lion was the, like a catalyst for this butterfly effect on his life. And for all of those people, I'm going to say there was not a lack of fear. There, there, they were, there, was some, there was probably some scaredness in there. I have no idea what God, what line God has called you to chase. I don't have a clue. I don't have a clue. It may mean answering a call into full-time vocational ministry. That's what I did. I ran like the wind away from it for 10 years. And all of my all of my non-Christian friends and some of my Christian friends said, dude, you've lost your mind. You were going to leave that incredible job. You're going to be you're going to be part of it, part an owner in that real estate company to go into full-time ministry? Are you crazy? Answer the call, whatever it is, man. It could be that. It could be, I don't know, the Lord may be calling you to move to New York and go to work in an inner city school. Like, I have no idea. Start a business. Shut a business down. Start a relationship. End a relationship. Like, I don't know. Apply for graduate school. You've been wanting to do that for 25 years. It's scary. I had not been in school in 25 years. I don't know if I can still read. If God's calling you to do that, that's what you need to do. You can take this to the bank. None of those things are risk-free. None of them. All of them require taking some sort of a leap of faith, some sort of being obedient. What is obedience? It's a willingness to do whatever, whenever, and wherever God calls you to be. And it's probably not halfway around the world doing mission work in the jungle in Zambia. It's probably not, but it could be. Like, I don't know. It's probably on the other end of a telephone call or the other end of a text message or the other end of an, of an email, something, Probably. Read this book, y'all. Faith is a risky business. It is. I want to end this today. Tell you about a big faith, huge risk-taking believer named Peter. The disciples are rowing across the Sea of Galilee. It's nighttime. It's dark. They look up, and Jesus is walking on the water. Don't minimize that either. The dude is walking on the water. Like he's really walking on the water. The Bible doesn't say it looked like he was walking on the water. It said he's walking on the water. The guys, did, what do they do? They're in the boat. They look and they're scared. The Bible says they're 
scared. They think he's a ghost. They were screaming like little terrified kids. And so once they stopped acting like scaredy cats and Jesus stopped laughing at them, he said to them, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And Peter said, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out to you on the water. And Jesus said, come on. And Peter takes one, one step out of this boat, this lion chasing big faith step out of that boat, and, G and, and, and Peter's walking on the water. And it just would have been so much cooler if that was it. Like if I'd have been writing the Bible, I, I, would, have, I would have said, and Peter walked all the way out to Jesus, and they hung out for a little bit, and then they went back to the boat and had a sandwich or something. I don't know. I didn't write the Bible, though, that, because that's not what happened. What happened? What does Matthew 14 say? about Peter. It says, but when he saw the wind, he was scared and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. It is almost an inevitability, y'all, when you, when you take a risk, when you take a leap of faith, you always second guess yourself. You decide to go step out of the boat and you change careers or you change or you, or you end a relationship or you start a relationship or you go on a mission trip, you always have Second thoughts, it's like buyer's remorse when you buy a brand new car and you're so thrilled until you get out of the parking lot. Like, anybody ever experienced that? And it always starts with, did God really say for me to get out of the boat? Every lie, every sin that comes across in our lives begins with that lie that started in the garden. Did God really say? Did God really say not to eat of that tree? Did God really say not this or whatever? It's the deceiver getting in your head, y'all. You start sinking spiritually because you, you, you're, you put your eyes on the winds and the waves and not Christ. And I think we second-guess ourselves because sometimes this is me. So much it used to be me. We insist on absolute certainty before we take a step out on faith. Now think about how dumb that kind of sounds. If there's absolute certainty, is there any faith involved? Shake your head, no, no. I heard somebody say one time that you will never be more than 80% sure about anything. And if you wait for greater certainty, you will miss every opportunity that comes across life. And we still want 100% money back guarantee. That takes faith totally out of the equation, y'all. Peter gets a bum rap. And so, yeah, Peter did deny Jesus three times, but he's the only one that got close enough to get caught. Peter did flip out in the garden the night that Jesus is arrested, pulls out his sword and cuts the, the, the guard's ear off. But he's the only one that came to Jesus' defense. And yeah, Peter's the, the one that sank in the Sea of Galilee, but he's the only dude that got out of the boat. It is so easy, y'all, to criticize him when you're watching from the boat. Some folks get out of the boat and some folks sit in and criticize. We all know people of both kinds. Some get a numb hind in. Y'all know what a numb, you don't know what a hind in is? Some folks get a numb hind in sitting on the couch watching football and criticizing and some strap the helmet on, put a mouthpiece in, go out on the field and take somebody out. It's easy to criticize from the couch. Some folks chase lions and some run like scaredy cats. And I think risking sinking is better than sitting and doing nothing. It is. And you know what? Maybe you sink sometimes. Maybe God orchestrates it so that you sink and say, what do you say? Lord, save me. I want to risk sinking. I don't want to sit around and do nothing. I'm not going to do it. It's not obedient. 
our greatest regrets are absolutely going to be the God-ordained risks that we did not take. And I'm not saying ignorant, dumb risks. I'm saying God-ordained risks. I'm saying pray through stuff. Talk to get wise, godly counsel from friends. Don't you know that godly friends are in your life because they're in your life? Get counsel from them. So you will not regret risking sinking. You will regret sitting around and doing nothing. I read one time, and I'm going to leave you with this thought. I read one time that hell begins the day that God grants you the vision to see that all that you could have done for him, to see that all that you should have done for him, and to see all that you would have done for him, but you didn't. Y'all, you got to stay connected with him. Peter sunk because he got disconnected from Jesus because he's looking at him and he took his eyes off of him. Jaws swam by or something. He took his eyes off of him. Keep your eyes on him. God speaks to us in his word. Y'all, have enough discipline five minutes a day to become 10 minutes a day, whatever. Stay in his word. This is the way he communicates with us today. Our communication back to him is through prayer. Get on your knees. Spend time on your knees and pray with him. He will lock arms with you and y'all will slay lions together. I'm telling you. And it is the most awesomest thing ever when that happens. But you can't do it if you're not in a relationship with him. So if that's you today, and you are not in a relationship with the Lord. That repentance I talked about, it's 180 to return. Turn away from sin, turn towards him. Confess with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, that he died on the cross for me. And believe in my heart that he was raised three days later from the dead. That's it. That is it. All of those things need to be there. You can't be saved without repentance. Don't take that lie from the devil. So y'all pray with me. Let this be the day, Lord, that I say, I repent of my sin, Lord. I turn away from it and I turn towards you. Lord, I pray that my eyes never come off of you. And I believe that you died on that cross to save me. And I, and I believe, Lord, that you rose from the dead three days later. Lord, change me from the inside out. I love you in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you're watching online and that happened and you said yes to the Lord, go to, go to the Connect tab on our website and let us know. If it happened to you in here today, our prayer team will be back there. If you're on the fence today, don't let your head hit the pillow tonight without taking super seriously what I just said. Most important thing I said today was the last thing I said. Thank you.
thank you all again for joining us this morning. We hope you have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday out on the land for Easter. Y'all have a great day. We'll see you.